I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm here with Andreas Luizu. Andreas is a business storytelling specialist. I am interested, just as we introduce you, Andreas, to figure out how do you describe yourself to people? Yeah, that's a really good question. A very brave, can I just say very brave and almost successful uh, attempt at pronouncing my surname, which is Luizu. But uh, no one's really got that right over the years. And that includes me, I believe. When I've uh, when I've spoken to other sort of native Greek Cypriots, they say I've, I've got it all wrong and I'm using the wrong form and my dad was a liar. So that's a, that's a whole other story. So how do I describe myself? Well, uh, it's kind of to understand where I am in writing, you know, what are the credentials for writing this book? You know, I suppose you have to go back really to school. So my big interests were always literature and economics. So at 18, I had to decide. And I chose, and I think I made the right decision, I chose to do English. You know, after my first degree, I was, I was going to pursue a more academic career. But I was also interested in business. I thought I could do business first and then academia. I couldn't, probably couldn't do it the other way around. So I had a big switch. and I joined PwC. I joined their management consultancy, the business advisory um, service. But at the same time, I qualified as a chartered accountant. So it was quite strong on the, on the mathematical side. So kind of from really my mid-20s onwards, these two sides, the business side and the writing side came together. I began to be the person that, that, that was asked to write reports or, you know, to write in those days memos and stuff like that. And that kind of continued straddling both sides of that. As I worked, I, I worked as a, an investment analyst in the city and I, um, I, I was quite I was good enough sort of financially, good enough with maths, but my real thing was the writing. I think that's what made me stand apart from other people working in those sorts of roles. So kind of scroll forward 10 years from that, I started to work in training, uh, predominantly in financial training. So treat, you know, quite hard maths, things like um, company valuation or com- company analysis. Um, but always with a focus on how you can explain this to other people through good, accurate writing. And over the years, I've introduced more and more writing techniques and more and more storytelling techniques into my courses until they actually became courses about 
business storytelling or to be really, really accurate. The courses were often about financial storytelling. So I worked basically with big banks and asset managers to get whatever message they wanted to get across to, for example, their shareholders who maybe weren't particularly financially literate. And that's just sort of developed since then. So I started to write more and more about financial things and about business. Then the the opportunity came to write the story is everything. Again, this is a lucky story that this came up a week after we went into lockdown. I'd I'd been speaking about this book with a few companies. Uh, And then a company that who knew me kind of approached me semi out of the blue and said, you know, we hear you're planning this. Would you like to write this? And the timing was great because I thought, oh, you know, COVID's here. We're going to have at least two weeks in lockdown. So I can do a really good kind of like outline of this book. I, I, I didn't, of course, none of us thought that the next four, five, six months would be inside. And if you flip it around, kind of that isolation and that lack of distraction, yeah, they're absolutely perfect conditions for writing. So I continued to teach. All my teaching moved online. Everybody was interested in storytelling. So it's really kind of joyful for me to be writing a book about what I was teaching at the time. And it makes it really fresh because I'm, you know, using examples. My my clients, my teaching clients are from all around the world. So I am able to, you know, access examples that are different from other people telling you about storytelling or business writing. And I, and I really set out to write a book that didn't have any mention of Apple. Brilliant, you know, obviously brilliant marketing techniques, but it's been so overdone. And I didn't want to talk about Star Wars as a story because that's been so overdone as well. So I was able to bring in these two sides in terms of content, the literary side and the business side and the kind of the training side as well. And that that's, for me, that's what makes the book run. So it's very much about a practical guide. There's, you know, there's lots of examples. There's a fair bit of theory, but it's actually about you writing stories about your business. And we're going to get into all of that in a minute. So you mentioned there, the story is everything. Mastering creative communication for business. That's your book available uh, everywhere you get good books. And it was published on April the 14th. So we're here, we're here just a few days after that. Sure. Uh, is the feeling that you have now the book is published, the, the feeling that you expected? Well, I've published a couple of books in the past. And it's a really, really strange feeling because I'm very, uh, and this is not, this is, this is about me rather than about books. This is how I always approach projects. I'm very, very project driven. So I've never worked for a long time for the same company. And I tend to put my heart and soul into a project. And then something like the book is really strange because you really go for it and it's, you know, it's edited, it's re-edited, it's legally checked, you do final changes, and then it all goes silent for six months, <laughs> you know? And then you get a book, you know, the, the the postman turns up, and suddenly you open it up thinking it's your, you know, it's kind of your new headphones or something, and actually it's nine copies of this thing that you finished six months ago. And it's a really strange feeling because there's a little bit of a distance between what you've created and what's actually produced. Uh, so when I was writing the book, I, I'm, I'm a big over planner. So when I'm writing a book, I plan a lot and I use 
literally use bits of paper. I buy really big sketchbooks to draw mind maps. I use Excel. I use mind mapping software. I've got kind of post-it notes everywhere. And then that slowly reduces into a plan for the book and then 20 chapters and then kind of modules or even down to the paragraph level. Then you start writing and everything changes. You know, I, I, I want my planning to be flexible. And it's like a big sort of like funnel, kind of all these ideas you have, you you narrow them down into the writing. And then you've got, uh, I think in this case, something like 38,000, 40,000 words. And then it comes out and it's kind of all your ideas are just in this one place that you can, like I've got a copy in front of me, you can pick up and drop on the the desk in front of you. And it's a great, great feeling. It's there's something magical about producing a book, especially a book that's been edited by other people, because you know, unless you're very lucky, unlucky, you're going to, it won't have any mistakes, won't have any typos and it'll be, it'll be well, hopefully it'll be well written. What do you do with all of those notes and post-its and all of that information that went into the book? Is that something that you keep? Do you throw it all away? Uh, I keep all the computer stuff, definitely. Well, I, I can't throw it away. This is a terrible sort of retention thing. <laughs> in, in my mind, in about 40 years, there'll be a museum to my greatness. And people, young students will look around and think, my God, that was the, you know, a, a, I, I had this with one of my uh, teachers when I when I did my masters at cambridge she she would say she'd go into libraries to study and the librarians at the end of the day would uh, say can we keep your pencil because we want to put it in our museum and i just thought that's so bizarre and i just always had this dream that someone somewhere will be interested in how i got there so i throw most of it away but the original the most original the, the earliest ideas i try and keep I try and keep this kind of what I call the storyboard, which is the chapter outline. Mm. Uh, and the real reason I do that is I think I think I learn a lot from planning. So I think a lot of us, when we're writing anything, stories or anything, we try. We actually, because we're a little bit nervous, we're afraid of the clock, of the countdown. We start probably start writing too early. So I really like the planning stage. I really like refining and learning about the 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 planning stage so i tend after the book so when story was everything was finished i did go back to my notes and my plans and my kind of sketches and think right you know what could you do better next time and i think that you know the key idea of this if there's a learning for your for your listeners is that plan but keep your planning really flexible you know plan in a way that if you're midway through chapter three and a better idea comes to you, a smarter example, have space in your planning for that. Because the actual process of writing will always create, always create more ideas. Yeah, one of the reasons that I asked that question is because we live in a world where a lot of people document their, document everything. So document the the story of everything. And so... It's really interesting in writing because you you have a decision to make as you're writing anything, particularly a book. Do you release that information out to the world in parts as part of the story of the book? Or do you keep it all in and just allow people to review the finished product? Where do you stand on the documentation of everything? So keeping those notes, keeping those post-its, did you use any of that in, in promotion of the book? Or is that stuff you like to keep for yourself? 
Oh God, that's such a complex question. Let me give you like the simple answer is, is I hate it. I basically hate it when writers are saying things like, oh, here's my Scrivener word count for the day. Or, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, here's the 19 titles I've rejected. Now, I understand why people do that. And I think the actual process of creation is really, really interesting. But I'm not interested in, unless I've, I've bought the book, I'm not interested. So, for example, kind of my 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 favourite author is uh, George Orwell, and yeah, I will read early drafts. Or he he does very simple plans, uh, and sometimes his essays become. You know, there's a process where if you read his really short essays or newspaper pieces, you can see how they become a non-fiction book in his mind. I think that's fascinating. But unless I'm actually invested in the final book then it's, it, it's of no import to me. And I think when you go onto Twitter or Instagram, I think a lot of new writers do this. And I think they're actually what they're, you know, because writing obviously is completely, it's pretty much a solitary activity. So what they're looking for is someone to say, well done, you know, you've done the work. And that's absolutely fine, but it doesn't kind of interest me at mm. all. Whereas I love people who've had a book out there five years later say, oh, I would have changed everything because of this and that and that. <laughs> and I love that, that, that kind of, I like the finished article, the finished product, and then going back to it. I love the way how, you know, there's a, there's a really great saying about that's either come from the ancient Greeks or from uh, Zen philosophy, or probably from a lot of different sources about you can never step in the same river twice. Uh, and that's what I'm saying about the river changes, but also you change so much. And I think it's got a really big application with reading books, but also with writing books. You, you write a book and you read it five years later and it feels so different. The book stayed exactly the same. You have changed. And I think that's a much more interesting thing to investigate than, um, you know, here are my four plans for the cover that my brother-in-law has knocked up on Canva. Your process for storytelling is something, the enthusiasm for the process is something that actually comes across in the book and is also reinforced now as you're talking to me. It's interesting because in the book you touch on, you touch on a part where you're talking about data analysts, almost two data analysts. Yeah. You, uh, you explain left brain dominant people versus right brain dominant people and how they can communicate or how you can communicate in your own brain to other people. And you seem to have kind of this hybrid nature, this hybrid approach to creativity and business. You've got the, the, you're right in the middle, left brain and right brain. Do you find many people like? I I think everybody's like that. Right. I I, I, I think we have predominances that, you know, it's an interesting question. Are you quote unquote artistic because you're born artistic or because your parents uh, were artists? And I think a lot of it is about how you grow up. And I think it's very, very limiting to look at the brain as two spheres that don't connect. I think the actual research, I looked into this because, you know, I was always hearing this left brain, right brain. Yeah. I looked into it and actually the, the original research into this was designed to show that the, the hemispheres are connected, that they're not separate. What we've done is we, and what we continue to do at really early age and say, say things like, oh, He'll never be able to do maths because he he likes playing the trumpet. Or they're really good at drawing, which means they'll be they'll be rubbish at physics. And you see that like you go later on into work, especially now I begin to 
you know, I, I, I run a festival. Uh, I meet lots of people who are involved in arts management, and they often say, "Well, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm managing this, but I, I, I still can't do a cash flow because I'm artistic." And you know what? I think, I think that's a bit of an excuse. I think that's <laughs> yeah. You see, I, I, you have to believe that everything. I believe that everything is learnable, and as a consequence of that, I believe everything is teachable. And you know, I'm my natural, you know, template or the way I see the world would, would stop me from being, say, a biologist. Right? That's not how I think. But I would love to find out what a biologist is. We restrict. There are so many restrictions already placed on us. Why would we do this kind of not particularly true? form of of kind of a neuro restriction i think i may have coined a new word there neuro restrictive i like it when when we've got influences from all sides mm. you know yeah one of the reasons i asked the question it's, it's a, a question that's personal to me because if, if you were to describe me as a marketer i'd be a hybrid marketer i'm yeah. equally comfortable and enthusiastic in data and analysis as i am in copywriting that that yeah. i love them both and i've always felt this maybe either pressure and it could be pressure on myself to kind of choose a discipline to choose a specialism in marketing yeah. and that was maybe earlier on in particularly when i started out in marketing but these days i'm much more comfortable in being a generalist and it's something that you yeah. just talked about it there i love how a wider fascination with marketing and creativity opens my mind up and I don't feel that pressure to um to pigeonhole myself really as a specialist marketer and um, I'm just I was interested in your journey whether you've experienced that same kind of either pressure that you've put on yourself or a decision at some point in your career where you thought oh maybe I really need to throw myself into a creative discipline because it's it's something that exists you feel it sometimes it's it's the opposite actually Um, I I felt I needed and it's sort of certainly financially, I needed to get to get a job, mm-hmm. and I I didn't come from a background where I could spend four or five years writing a novel, and you know I've got an auntie who's a literary agent that's going to sell it to Penguin. That that's not my background at all. So I had to make money, and I was, you know, as I said, I was interested in business. I liked going into different businesses and uh, and seeing how they work. So if anything, it was more that I got later on, and I thought, well, you know, actually, when are you going to write these novels? When are you going to write these books? And I got onto the Faber and Faber Novel Writing Academy the first time that was run. And it was great because you meet loads of people who, um, you know, did English, wanted to be novelists, and then their first job was X. And then they moved, they really liked X, or they had a mortgage. And then they moved into Y. And then Z and W. And you kind of like each move takes you perhaps further away from from where initially you were, gonna, you, you, you were aiming at. But I do think that, say, I read relatively few novels by people in their 20s. I read a lot more about people that have worked, that have struggled in different spheres, and then have got to 50 or 60 or even 70 and thought, right, I'm going to write that novel. I think you can perhaps be too early with your kind of, with the quest for publication. And, you know, I take my hat off to anybody that gets published. It's a really, really hard process. But, you know, I want to draw a distinction for your, for your, for your listeners. I think getting published is an amazing thing that happens to you. And, it's, and it just feels really great. 
but 99% of writers don't get published. And I actually think that's what makes writing great, that you can do it for yourself, you know, or you can do it for a really limited audience. And it's still completely valid. This is interesting. It also leads me into a question that I wanted to ask coming into this. And it's about current society allows us, it allows us because we can self-publish, we can publish everything as we discussed before. And so maybe that reduces the quality of some writing potentially, or perhaps people are publishing too early as you described. The message that I got from your book is you, you study storytelling and you've studied it for a long time. I took your book as almost like a dissection of storytelling. That's how it came across to me. And I'm interested in that study of storytelling what has changed for you over, has anything changed over the period that you've been studying storytelling in comparison to yeah, how it is today? Yeah, what, what's changed is, you know, obviously you and I were talking about storytelling as, a, a, as part of marketing. Yeah. Actual reasons for telling stories hasn't changed one bit. The way a good story is constructed is the same now as it was. Yeah, people tend to sort of always invent these examples of cavemen telling stories around the fire. We don't know they did that. That's, no one was there. No one was there to record that. We're just assuming. But we, we know in kind of ancient Greece, in China, in Rome, certainly, that stories existed that, 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 that people communicated tales. Um, I think the basics are the basics. And the basics are what do people want? They want an emotional connection with the character they want a story that has an element of struggle and achievement and attainment most of us prefer a happy ending yeah we all like stories that are polished and this is where perhaps you're hinting at things like self-published books mm. i i've got to say i don't read self-published books uh, in the same way that you will never ever buy a ticket to hear me play guitar Right, I love playing guitar. It's it's. I play guitar. It's a crime against music. Right, I'm happy to play guitar on my own in my room with my daughter, sort of uh, holding her hands over her ears. But I think some things aren't meant for like wider distribution. You think about the commitment as a reader you make with a book. To read a book like mine is probably going to take you sort of somewhere between twelve and twenty hours, twelve and twenty-four hours. There's actually quite a lot of time that you're demanding from a reader. Readers are busy. They're easily distracted. Uh, none of us are asking for, for what we read to be made more complex or longer. You have a duty of care towards your reader, and that must involve editing and checking. And, it, and I've got to be really directive here. If you're going to get published, you must have someone else look at your work before you get published. I'm talking about books here. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, this, to me, will also apply to press articles. It certainly applies to press releases. You know, And it's not just catching spelling or errors and kind of like typos and punctuation mistakes. Those, those, those things are really, really important. It's about, can someone tell you a better idea? Can someone change the order for you so it has more impact? And if I slightly refine what I said about 10, 15 minutes ago, writing is a solitary practice, but publication is is a team effort. Yeah, you touch on this in the book, and I don't know if this explicitly applies to just book writing, 
but yeah. you touch i think it might be um you talk about proofread like finding a proofreading buddy is that how you describe it you'll, re- yeah. you'll remember yeah yeah um and i am interested in that do, do you think that does apply to uh, to the storytelling in business for example checking of presentations as well as it might in terms of authoring books yeah without without a doubt uh Difference is we're all good at presentations now because we've all, you know, many of us at university or even at school. Like my daughter, who's 12, does presentations. She knows how to use PowerPoint and stuff like that. She knows how to talk in front of a room. Presentations are all good at. Writing, we're not all that good at because writing, we can write a shopping list, but it's not the same as writing a story. And writing is probably for most people, it's their 12th skill or their, it's, their, it's their 15th skill on their list. And that's why people are often nervous when it comes to writing. So what I I suggest, the idea of a feedback buddy basically works like this. You choose someone who actually isn't a close friend. That's really important. It's not a mate. It's someone you know and you offer. And you basically say, look, if I send you 500 words on this or I send you this, this press release or this website text can you look at it and i'll do the same for you and what happens is it's kind of giving feedback it's a really strange process because we're nervous we don't want to upset people but uh like if, if there's anybody kind of like listening to this and they've got a, um, a piece of paper and a pen just write just write kind of this is one of the mistakes i very nearly made the pen is mightier than the sword I missed a space towards the beginning of that quotation uh, between pen and is, if you're a bit slow thinking. And that very, very, very nearly got published. And it's only because of feedback. Are you sure about this? I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. You know, that would have been an absolute disaster. So you're basically, your feedback buddy is, is stopping you from, like walking around with your with with your flies open, sort of thing, or saying, or having gravy on your shirt. And what happens is, when you start to swap, you're very respectful and polite. And then, after a while, that politeness goes, and you'll just sort of say, "No, change this. This is a bit rubbish. Unclear. Uh, throw this on the fire. You don't need it." And the, actually, the way in which you give feedback improves very very quickly. So you could just, I've got someone. In fact, after this, I've got a call with a friend of mine called Weeder, who I've been swapping work with for 12, 15 years, and she'll just say. This is, you know, she won't even say this is rubbish. She uses a shorter word if a paragraph doesn't make sense. And I know straight away, I'm, I'm now in that sort of situation. I've hardened up. I have no fear of feedback whatsoever. I actively welcome people pointing out my mistakes and giving me ideas that improve my work. I think that's a sign. If you feel in yourself that you're... You react badly to feedback that you think, oh, it's because they're a bad person or or, or they don't understand. Then look back at yourself and think, is that really the case or am I just hypersensitive here? There are lots of great tips in your book about, I guess, principles for a giving and receiving feedback. Uh, yeah. I am Just on that topic of finding a feedback buddy, though. Um, how would you recommend people find their buddy? Should it should it be a close friend or family member? Is that something to avoid? Oh, avoid that. What what what's what's your mum going to say about your writing? She's going to love <laughs> the, the most dangerous sort of feedback is when someone writes back to you and says, "Oh, don't change a thing." That means a they're either in love with you for whatever reason, think you're perfect, or b they haven't bothered to look at it. Right? Never accept that feedback. I think you've got to look for someone. Uh, 
what I do is I imagine someone that I, and I, I really, I really sort of imagine her seeing her, someone I know who has very high standards, is intelligent, but doesn't know anything about the subject. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not setting myself up to be challenged by a content expert. I'm looking at someone who's going to evaluate my writing, my clarity, my accuracy, my precision. And basically, the other tip, one of the other tips I give is a line to this is that I read out. So before I send anything out, I read it out loud because that's when you can really hear your mistakes and you can tell your punctuation has gone bad. And I just imagine myself reading to her. And if she looks bored or if she looks puzzled or if she gets up from that imaginary chair, I know that it's not good enough. I know I've got to work harder. So, and that's before I send it out to a real person. So you, you'll find if you look actively look for people, you will find other people who are willing to swap. And it has to be a swap. It has to be a sister uh, or where you share, where you offer as well as you receive feedback. And that's, that's what makes it really work. If it's just one sided, that person is eventually going to say, nah, I can't be bothered. Or they may be a professional editor. If you work for a big company, you may have a professional editor who's just going to see a hundred different bits of text every day and, just wants to get rid of you You know in the nicest possible way they'll clean up your errors but they won't tell you what mistakes you're making so we always think about feedback as something "Ah, i need this i need this check so i can get it out now but we should stop we should get stuff out now that's great but we should also look at feedback as a learning opportunity so if someone says you know you use a lot of passive passive tenses or you know, your sentence length becomes quite monotonous. These are long-term learning points. This is more than just getting that email out, getting that tweet out before coffee break. These are things that are going to change your writing style like forever. So you need to invest in that because I said most of us, when we're at business, we don't get taught how to write. When I was reading this aspect of your book and you talking through it now, the lazy marketer in me is saying... (laughs) There's got to be an app for this. Like, imagine an app where you, uh, you maybe it's you, you try and find someone that's not part of your field, your genre, and they provide feedback on your work and you provide feedback on theirs, like a mutual feedback society type app. But they, that is the lazy marketer. I'm sure you can find these people in other areas of life without an app. Um, does, yeah. that sound like, does that sound like a good idea or a bad idea? I think there are there are apps like that out there yeah. in the creative world. In the marketing world, I've not come across anything. I, I, my old school approach to this would be: it's probably better to have someone that you could, uh, you've you you already know, and whose work you uh, respect, and whose level is kind of slightly better than yours. Yeah. I think there's, there's a risk. It's a bit like things like Google Translate, is that if you put that in, say, I, I, I speak Spanish, so I put some Spanish text I've written, it comes out in English and it's, and it's almost correct. Whereas if I'd gone for a coffee with a Spanish mate, I can get it 100% correct. Yeah. I think that's, that's a big, big difference. It's like when you it's like when you when you're on YouTube and they've done a commentary and they've used one of those apps that provides the commentary and there's absolutely no intonation, there's no difference in the voice. You know, he has died today of cancer like that. Yeah. And it's you think, what on earth has made you lose your personality, lose your own tone of voice for this computer? 
you know, I think if your English isn't perfect or your language isn't perfect, but you're making it really, it's good enough and you're making a real effort, I think that's quite compelling because anybody that's ever done anything in a, in a second language will just know how hard it is. And I've got tremendous respect for You think about in the UK, especially how many people you meet who are doing incredibly complicated marketing jobs or any sorts of jobs in a second language. Yeah, it's incredible. That's, that's a big thing. Oh, uh, as you were talking about feedback, you were, sent, you were talking about people that are maybe in this – They've got this thirst to release information quickly to the world, whether it's a tweet or an article. And in the book, you touched on people being their own, their own proofreaders, their own self-editing yeah. because of this demand. Is that something that's changed in your study of storytelling, this, this thirst for getting things out quickly? Yeah, I think the whole speed has changed. Yeah. Just of writing, you, know, you know what's caused the increase in speed of writing? It's the increase in speed of reading. So if we, if you look at, uh, I got some stats from the um, a surprisingly good sources, the UK government website on this, and they, they estimate that, that if you have a web page, even on a subject you like, you're only going to read twenty to twenty eight percent of the words on it. You know, okay. normally it's, it's a bit like a conversation. If you're hard of hearing, if you hear eight out of ten words, you'll be okay normally. So we just speeded that up when we skim. And what that means is, or one of the many impacts of that, is that people are less careful when they write just because of the time pressures. And also the errors that people make are less, at a certain level, are less noticeable. So you may not notice. So something like 30 years ago was 100% correct, something like the BBC News website. You'll see typos and spelling errors quite frequently on that now. You know, 30 years ago, if if someone had repeated, has used the word incorrectly on a BBC kind of news, news the, the, the Telegraph and the Times would be full of letters tomorrow complaining about the breakdown of civilization. Hmm. We read much more rapidly and we care a little bit less uh, or we think we care a little bit less about what's presented. In fact, I think the opposite is true. I think the really clever marketing people have realized that people now skim in a very, very distinct way. And also they realize that how we read online is changing or has changed how we read offline. So it's a simple thing. I'm, I'm, I'm writing the follow-up to the stories everything at the moment. I've been looking at headlines, and it seems that the most effective length for a headline is just six words. Okay, so we start with that. Then the second piece of information is people who skim tend to read the first three words or the last three words of a headline or, the fir- or of, a, of a sentence before they make the decision to carry on. So you've got here, if you like, you've got two proofs that you've got six words to get interest. So you can't do kind of like the equivalent of throat clearing online. You can't do you when you see all these kind of uh, this email list to tell you about this. That's just a waste of time. By the time they've got to, the reader has got to the end of that sentence, they've, they've, they've cast you off. Yeah, here's a tweet about no, stop it. Just go straight to it. And actually, going straight to it is a real skill. You know, quick and easy. So if something is quick and easy to read, it's because someone has spent a lot of time crafting it. 
And in your book, you touch on techniques to help with what I'm going to describe as brevity or, or succinctness in writing. Yeah. I, I'm so curious about this particular topic because I, I love copywriting as well. And so I love this this craft of making something that's really engaging in the fewest words possible. But something that sticks with me is I think about, as you touch on in the book, long form content and um, mm. wider vocabularies and the people that like to be maybe more flamboyant with their writing. <laughs> and I, I wonder, is there is there still a place for that in today's society? Where do you think that's going in the future? Well, the place for that, Scott, is in your question, because you used a word that I immediately thought, what? What's Scott Coleman using the word succinctness for? <laughs> that's not a word that suits you. I don't know you that well, but that's not a word you'd ever use. Would you use that word to your mates? I, I use it a lot, actually. Do you? Well, yeah, I'm not judging. <laughs> Stop using it, Scott. Stop using it. No, see, what, what you have in English, and this is a, one of the great things about the English language, is this uh, what people politely call borrowing, or we, we may call theft now of different parts of speech, different words from many different languages. So what you always have, or usually have in England, in, in English, uh, American English, Australian English, whatever it's, wherever it's based, is you have the ability to say something as if you'd come, as if you're working in a church in the Latin ages, so you would say succinctness, or if you're Anglo-Saxon, kind of some sort of Anglo-Saxon peasant so there's always a short form which is one or two syllables so uh let me think uh of an example i could use the the more latinate word receive or i could use get Mm -hmm. they both have the same meaning they're both semantic The, the semantics are the same but the impression those sorts of words give are very very different now the thing is if you use a lot of the anglo-saxon words people say oh it's a bit sort of poor it's a bit so you know like at school uh, i grew up in market which was no me by no means a rich place then right but i was told not to use words like get because it was you know it was seen as lower class yeah yeah you know um and i would meet loads of people especially when i started work, not so much at university but when i started work I would use people that instead of saying give money, they would say uh, administer funds. Okay, and I've always been very wary. Not not wary. That's not true. I've been very alert. If people talk like that and that's their natural voice, that's fine. But I'm always wary when someone has started off with shorter words and for some reason moves to longer words because normally you think the friendlier or closer you get to someone, the the more you would go from the long to the short if you ever see the other move it's a sign normally for me that that person is uh, trying to become pompous for some sort of reason with their vocabulary perhaps they feel that they're threatened by the conversation or they feel a need to somehow kind of it's almost like people play, playing like linguistic top trumps they're trying to say you know a word oh god you know i didn't know the, the word quintessence for example, and to me, that's always nice. That's the opposite of skilled communication. Yeah. That's making things harder. So I would always say, if you're given the choice and it's not going to offend people in your marketing speech, use the Anglo-Saxon. Use the shorter word. You know, a simple thing is it takes up a lot less space. We're all looking to increase our readability. So the less space you use with words, you know, the more space you open up for another word. 
And do you consciously apply this when writing your books now as well? Is it something the writing in, I guess, more short form or writing with brevity? Is that something that you're very conscious of? Is, has your writing changed to encompass this over the years? Yes. The writing style in this book, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, this book um, is based on a series of courses and lectures that I deliver to clients, to business clients, and also to MBA students at universities pretty much around the world. Uh, and so it's honed, you know, with lots of spoken practice. So when I came to write, I would say at least half of the book, I was able almost to dictate to myself, you know, and I would have worked this in such a way that, on my courses, the courses are brutal. If you're, if you're wasting time with courses, as a tutor, people switch off, they get their phones out. So you've got to think of like really quick and efficient ways to get your message across. And also you've got to keep changing because people's attention spans uh, have become really, really short. So the, the course gave me, if you like, the voice and part of the structure for the book as well. I, I deliberately went for a, a tone of voice that was conversational. I didn't want this to be some someone lecturing, you know, talking down to people. I don't think that's how people choose to learn. And also it's not, you know, occasionally I do, you know, very occasionally, like once a year I have to do a formal lecture. It's a different voice. It's a different tone of voice and it fits that environment. But that's not how I choose to communicate. I think very much, very the, the vast majority of your your listeners, if they're involved in marketing, they're looking for a way that's quick, but also that's personable, that, that creates some sort of connection with with the listener or the reader. And that means really thinking about vocabulary. I'll give you just an, you know another example. I was talking about this morning is just someone you know, just like they didn't have time. We've got a bit of a uh, a rush job going on uh, and I said how's it going and they said well at this moment in time we've got this and I I didn't want to say what well, when you say at this moment in time do you mean now yeah you do don't you I didn't say it because he's stressed okay, but it's things like that and these are really simple things if you're attuned to them that automatically improve the quality of your writing and if your writing's good then your storytelling follows you know you don't get storytellers who are great storytellers and bad writers doesn't it just doesn't go together and in closing andreas i'm interested just on this topic of the skills that you're teaching people and the skills and techniques that are included in your book that people can learn what i thought about is i looked at the book and i thought there's a lot of information here and yeah. how you can read it and I feel like it's a book that you have to apply and you have to apply the techniques over a period of time. You can't just read the book and then immediately, well, there are some techniques that will make you an immediately a better storyteller, but it's, it comes with practice. What are your recommendations for people taking the techniques from your book and applying them? How do they do that? Well, the key word is practice, you know, mm. um, it's kind of what, what yogics say, you know, with practice comes everything. You cannot expect, uh, you know, this is one of the big problems with a lot of the business storytelling books that I, I, I've read in the past. So they'll say, God, in Jaws, everybody's really, really afraid of the shark, even though you don't see the shark until kind of two thirds of the way into the movie. And then they'll, they'll, they'll jump a paragraph and they'll say, try and get the shark into your marketing copy. 
(laughs) To me, that's useless advice. (laughs) Absolutely stupid because you haven't explained how. So I go through in the book just like really simple, like three-line stories that anyone can do. You've all heard. I think one of the things, if if you're working for not not a one-man band, but uh, if you're working for a small, medium, or especially in a big, big company, Listen out this week. Listen out for the stories about, do you remember Reg and how he sold all those bananas? Or do you remember Susan and what, how she changed this and how this happened and that happened? Companies are run on stories, you know? you just got to be aware of them. you just got to be alert to them. And these become the urban myths of, of companies. And then, then they glue the whole companies together in certain ways. And you actually want to be the person that something something great happened to you and you turned it into a story. And what I love is, like, I've done this in the past when I've been at companies. Someone quotes back one of the stories I've told to me. And someone says, do you hear there was this guy that wrote this really good book about called The Story Is Nothing or something like that? Because I always get a little bit wrong. <laughs> and I think that's great because you've, you've added something, you know, into the world. And I think... You know, it's something for your, your your listeners to aim for. And this is kind of the world of advertising, which is slightly different, which is clearly different. But if you could ever do the equivalent of have a break, have a Kit Kat, or go to work on an egg, you know, little slogans like this, they're stories in themselves. They just stick with people forever. Andreas, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. The book, again, for anyone that's interested, is The Story is Everything, Marketing, Creative Communication for Business by Andreas Luizau. Luizou? Luizau? Luizou. Luizou. Just remember, The Story is Everything and Andreas. Story is Everything. And you can get the book on Amazon. Andreas, before we close, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you, uh, the story is everything. And maybe if they want to extend the conversation with you, where can they find you? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is uh, if you want to talk about books and writing, then I would say LinkedIn is a really good thing. I also, something we didn't touch on, which is I always also run um, something called the Margate Bookie, which is a charity that encourages reading and writing. And you can follow that or you follow us, I suppose is a better word, on Twitter. I'm very interested in this whole idea of literature and stories just making our lives better. So I'm very happy to hear from anyone, pretty much about anything. (laughs) Wonderful. All of the links to anything that we've discussed today will be in the show notes. And for now, all I'll say is, Andreas, thanks so much for your time. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.